D20s. Alignment grids. Several things. Several things. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the things we hate about D&D and how to fix them, the show that we are contractually obligated to make because a lot of people bought our first book. That's right. It's a special reward for everyone that only a select few got for you. I want you to thank all of the people that pre-ordered the book for this content. I mean, to be clear, a lot of people ordered the book and pre-ordered the book. We, we've sold several thousand copies of the thing, uh, but we did have a system by which people let us know they pre-ordered it, and the people who were willing to go those extra steps totaled roughly the sex number. Roughly. Yeah, so you the, get it? Uh, yeah, roughly. you get it, the sex number? Nice. The sex number roughly, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's how, I mean, we, we our, our pre-orders were, were well over several thousand, but uh, 69 people told us all about it, and that's how many things we're going to say we hate about D&D. You're goddamn right it is. That's right. I'm Jeff. That's John. You know that already, but I like to say it. It's fun to say. I know you love to say it, and who am I to begrudge you that? I'm John. Well, you're John. And that's Jeff. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, I should have I stepped on that. that the was joke. Great. Come on. <laughs> it's a good joke. It's the jokes. And who Folks. am I to disagree? <laughs> I've traveled the world and the seven seas. I'm Jeff. That's John. <laughs> so, uh, so when we uh, are coming back in here, we're, I mean, I, I kind of rearranged some of the numbers. We're going to have a little bit of a theme for the first few ones, just because I wanted to put them all together. Oh, I see that now. Yeah, I, I wondered why you were moving around in the in the uh, file, because we have a shared file for the things that we hate. And, you know, folks, before we even get into this, I want to tell you a story a little real quick about <laughs> the making of this show. Uh, I forgot we were making it. Yeah, good. <laughs> we rec- we recorded an episode. I, I'm i fairly certain that we recorded it like several days before I went to the hospital for a week. Yeah, no, it was one of those things where we were like, cool, let's record this. We did it. And then just like stuff happened. Yeah, I went, I got hospitalized. And by the time I came out, I'd been in there like a week and a half. And I, I, I had no strong impetus to remember the shows I forgot to edit and post at that point. <laughs> and it took, it took intrepid listeners using the various like secret channels you can access for doing cool things in our page, our uh, discord to remind me that we had promised to do this. And I was like, yeah, we did do that. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this time we're going to try and get this one edited and posted relatively quickly. So good for you. Yay. But yeah, okay. So number twenty number twenty-one. Alright. So this is the half of the coin, which is level twenty and the fact that nobody really sees it. Uh it's especially yeah. bad in D D for the reason that twenty is often kept as like the capstone for a lot of classes where you will get this like very class defining ability or something that's very, you know, like this feels like the culmination of power. But since I mean, the vast majority of games never even get above level 10. And even those that do end up usually getting to 20 aren't exactly sitting at that space. You have these cool tools 
that you just don't get to use. Yeah, and you see people brag about them. Like when they're looking through the uh, the class list and they're like, ooh, look at this one. At level 20, a monk becomes totally immune to whatever and can turn into a big thing and stuff. And it's like, no one's ever done that. And even if they could, they stopped doing it after one time doing it because there's no more levels to get. Yeah, usually if you hit 20... You're just like, oh, well, I guess we finish off whatever the adventure was that we were doing that took us to 20. And then we kind of look around and go, I I guess we start something else. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking more like max level because, uh, I mean, of course, there are uh, multiple D&Ds and some of them have different capstone levels. Like uh, first edition didn't really even have a capstone. Technically, fourth had level 30 is the capstone. But the capstone always has a problem to it, which is that there's not a lot of good reason to keep pushing for it. Uh, or, or once you get there, there's not really that much to do. And and so you unlock this cool thing that they were like, ah, finally, you have achieved perfection in your class. Here's a toy. But then you don't even want to play with a toy because you've grown up. <laughs> you've become an adult and you have no time for childish things. Yeah, it's just, it's such a sad thing to look at some of the capstone things that you would normally get on certain classes and go god it would be so much fun to be able to play with that and i will never be able to see it yeah yeah absolutely uh that i mean the question of how to fix it of course pops up immediately here which is really i don't mind there being max levels in games this one's a hard one to fix because ultimately whatever level you set as your max is going to be the max level and it's going to have some core problems to it that there's no place to go from here I mean, the big thing for me is you don't put a defining ability at the end of it. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was getting to. Yeah, if you have something that's like, oh, this is a rad, awesome ability, give it to them early, and you can have things scale up or have it have options to even change, but having it just sort of walled behind this absolutely impenetrable level is, it's annoying. Right. And the same thing applies to any any place you put a capstone ability. Like, for example, at level 10 of a prestige class, you see that you're like, oh, geez, I got to get 10 levels in Assassin before I get to the one thing in here that's interesting. Yeah, it's so it'd be nice if you were able to front load a little more, especially given D&D's propensity for not getting too high in the levels. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right, because there are people who have made records of that sort of thing, looking at like uh, Roll20 campaigns and just doing surveys and so on. And they find that most people just plain don't really f- go that far. Like you, you start level, most campaigns seem to start at level one because it's tradition. Uh, and, and then they peter out by level seven or eight. Yeah. And, you know, the other problem, I, I don't know how often you've tried to play at a max level campaign, John. Uh, A few times. I've tried it a few times as well. I know you ran a game for a near-max 4th edition party for us once. Uh, by the time you get to level 20, it's true. The game bogs down in complexity, especially in D&D, where it's like, yeah, you're level, you're level 20 and you have a million toys, but now you have a million toys and everything takes forever. Yeah, I've actually, back in 3rd ed, did an epic campaign and mm-hmm. the past level 20, and at that point, it... I mean, it really is just comes right back around to the point that we're going to get to shortly, which is it's just sort of rocket tag at that point, because everyone has all of these tricks and all of this 
prestige class and layered on extra options and feats and things like that. And at that point, you're like, all right, well, I've tweaked my character to be whatever, and I've gotten past level 20. And at this point, it's just, did I have the opportunity to use my dumb bullshit? Well, great, I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, heck, I'm playing in a fourth edition game right now where I have a level seven character and I feel like every turn I forget something that I have. <laughs> and that's just me. That's just that's just the way my brain works. But by level 20, level 30 in a fourth edition game, I'm just like, I I don't I don't remember. I, I, I'm sure I could do something. I'm going to do one cool thing and forget the 15 riders it has. <laughs> hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, now, like we were saying, uh, this is one half of the coin. The other half is the level one problem. And yeah, there's a few problems with that. I think, you know, both of us have more or less said multiple times on various other shows that we just won't play level one anymore. I'm just tired of it. Yeah, I, I mean, because so often you start a game at level one, it's definitely a level that most players are going to be familiar with. Mm. And most of the issues for D&D is you just don't have much to do. Yeah, no, you have your one attack or your one choice of a cantrip or whatever. Maybe you have one trick that you can do once per encounter or once per day. Uh, you, you don't want to get hit because you take way too much of your health as damage. Oh, yeah. So I mean, you just spend even, a lot of time resting. Even as like, oh, hey, I'm a fairly high constitution like rogue. Okay, great. You got hit by uh, like goblin's bow. They rolled max damage. You're dead. Yeah, that can happen even in 5th edition. Uh, I, I remember seeing that there were complaints back in 4th edition that they made the characters too hardy at starting level by giving them, like, most characters having 20-some hit points at the beginning of the game. But it, it made sense, because the rocket-taggy nature of first level has always been kind of a an irritating problem. And it, again, it boils down to the whole earn-your-fun issue that we discussed a lot in the previous episode of this, uh, where, I, I mean, I assume so, that was like six months ago. Yeah! Uh, <laughs> where first level is seen more of as a like a rite of passage or having to take a big pill or pledge week than it is like a fun game that you're actually playing. Yeah, and I know a lot of people look at it as, oh, well, you want to start at level one so that you can, you know, learn all the things your class does and, you know, get used to whatever you do. But so much of the players that, really advocate for level one are people who have been playing for 20 years and i'm like you don't need to be eased into anything and also the difference between a level one character and a level five character is a couple abilities and let me tell you i don't think anyone you're playing with is going to be like whoa 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 hold on i have two things to do wait a minute <laughs> Wait, I need to choose an additional skill to put plus two into? I'm confused. You're going to need to slope down. I, I mean, gotta granted, go I, home. I did just complain about how at max level this game becomes so complicated that it's hard to remember all your tricks and moves and so on. But, I mean, the first level characters aren't just, they just aren't there. The com the complexity expands dramatically in 5th edition. I'm not sure it expands to a degree that it needs to and starts from a position that it could. Now, I and will say this for 5th edition, is at least the first couple levels don't feel as useless as, say, a 3rd ed or a 2nd ed or anything like that. Yes. Uh, like, you do at least have something. 
Like, every class gets a toy. And that's right. nice. Yeah, yeah. Now, there have been there have been problems with, with this where, uh, I mean, 5th edition has this problem as well. You, you take two levels in Warlock, and you're done with Warlock because they padded first first level out too heavily. Uh, well, yeah, but that's an entirely different thing on the list. <laughs> you're absolutely right, so I'm going to stop. In fact, I think that might be one of the problems of the next thing on the list, isn't it? Uh, I mean, kind of, be. but not really. It, it can be. Uh, I mean, it's not as much as... Uh, I mean, let's go ahead and say it. The, number 23 on the list is what's ca- what we're calling the blueprint print problem, uh, which is that D&D is so well understood at this point and mapped out and someone else has already done all the math for you and the internet exists that it, it feels like when you gain levels, you're not really discovering new things about your character. You're just going, oh, okay, at this level, I'm supposed to take Vicious advantage. Yeah, there's... I mean, God knows I've done it. Basically, everyone I've ever played with has done it, and it's a rampant thing. And it's not like it's terrible to go, oh, I know the direction I want to take my character, but the nature of a level-based system that has a start and an end is you can go, great, I know what I get every level, and... I can figure out what would be best mathematically ahead of time. There's yeah, no incentive to be like, oh, you know, in the last few, you know, games we've been playing, I was really running around a lot more than I normally do. I think I'm going to take a feat for mobility this time. Mm-hmm. Most of the people just go, oh, no, this level, my feat is spoken for because I have to take this in order to unlock this in order to proceed on that one. Yeah. Now, this has become a, a, an ongoing problem in, in modern editions of D&D, uh, not, so, not just because there's so many best choices at each level of experience, but also because uh, you need to hit certain milestones. There's always requirements you need to hit and, uh, and prerequisites you have to have had accomplished, which means that choices you make in early levels are more about future choices than they are about what you're playing right now. And that's a sad thing when you have to look at your character and go, okay, it literally doesn't matter what happens in this game. I'm going to learn these skills in this order and take this thing at this level because when I hit, you know, six, I really want to be able to do whatever. Right. Like the only place you're really going to find any variation is if you have an opportunity to interact with opportunity attacks and you realize over the course of play that your DM is very good at never giving you any. Hmm. If you're like, oh, I'm going to build my character around one thing that the DM sometimes does, and then the DM never does it, and you're like, okay, well, I guess that's a decision I can make is to not engage with a system that I'm being denied. And I mean, the big problem with that is if you've already been doing the blueprint thing because you thought this is a thing I want to work towards, and you're like three levels into it when you realize it doesn't (laughs) work, at that point you're like, well crap (laughs) right yeah Uh, i mean how to fix that is don't be as restrictive just sort of be like hey if i want to be able to do a thing i should be able to like pick stuff that's interesting and it should be balanced and neat i shouldn't have to be like oh well i gotta take two levels of this and a level of that and three of this and then at this level i can unlock this prestige and then i can go here the gates is the problem for me yeah, and I think there's other things here as well. Like, for example, uh, making it so you can cha- go back and change things if things aren't as interesting as you expected they would be. 
Uh, I, I've even seen games that have like cutoff limits where you're like, oh, past level five, you can't mess with your character anymore. You're locked in. And I'm like, okay, that's that's that'd be cute if I was playing like a like a game show. But, you know, this is a game I'm playing every Saturday night and I want to just have a good time. Yeah. And I mean, things like fourth edition had a anytime you go up a level, you can change one of your powers out for a different one or, you know, swap well, things around. It's funny because this is a thing that I feel like this is one of the relevant and real complaints about fourth edition was that it was because there were so many different choices and there were so many big different lists of powers and options and so on that it was just more efficient to just go online and be like, how do I play a battle mind? And then you just pick the options that are sky blue and never look back. Thing is, I having, you know, we have been playing a 4E game recently and... Mm -hmm. One of the powers I had for a seventh level power, I eventually, after playing a few times, went, I actually don't need this, and I'm going <laughs> to switch it out. And I switched it out at eighth level because I went, oh, this isn't actually a thing that I care about, and I don't want to do it anymore. And I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a. The story I always think of for that is there was a power. I used to play a, a warlord in a game with you a long, long time ago. Uh, and I had an absolute favorite at will. It was called opening shove, and it was basically you attack a target. If you hit them, you don't do any damage, but they you get you push them a square, and then an ally can either shift their speed or they can uh, make a melee basic attack. Right, and mm -hmm. to me, the love of this power hinged on the fact that the initial push did not have to be against an enemy. It just said target, so you could use it if you built around pushing, which I had already done to shove an ally 15 squares forward and then have them move and still attack. Yeah. And I loved it because it was like, oh, cool. This is a battlefield setup ability. I can throw the rogue to the artillery line. Uh, but then when I looked at, went online and looked, it was like, oh, this is the worst power a warlord could pick at, at, at first level. This is the, this is a shitty at will because it doesn't give you an attack. Hmm. And I was like, it doesn't need to. You have another power that will give you an attack. This one is for throwing the rogue at the back line. Yeah, uh, and I think the blueprint problem can be solved with decent options that you are allowed to sort of go back on. You know, if I, yeah, so much of the things like whether it's I learned a feat or I learned a spell or whatever, a lot of D&D &D has a you're locked into that now, and that ends up really exacerbating the problem because if you're going to be locked into it, you're like, well, I have to know exactly what I'm doing, because if I fuck up on a level, it's going to take me a while to unfuck myself. Yeah. And, you know, you also see that in fourth edition with the whole like, OK, feet chains. Yeah, I want to do the frost cheese build, which means that at level eight, I have to pick uh, whatever the winter touched so that when I get into to uh, Paragon, I can pick the one that actually turns the whole the combo on and so on and so forth. It, it it works a lot better. And and this is a problem you see in games like this where you may start at a higher level is you make choices that don't make any sense at the level you chose them. Yes. Uh, so that your character makes sense now. And that makes me sad because, you know, that character's viable. Like, that was the character I played in your old epic level monk game, or, or not monk game, epic level D&D game where I played a monk was like, if you go back to level seven and look at this character I'm building, he's a useless bag of nonsense. He's a, he's a joke that none of his abilities synergize. He doesn't come online until level 21. Yeah. Uh, so next up is the problem of dead levels. 
Ah, yeah, levels where nothing happens. And that is really more an issue with the sacred cow of 1 to 20 being a thing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're not going to be able to go, oh, yes, all 20 levels, you get a new thing every single time. Not only would that just be terrible for the player to be like, I've got to keep track of 20 different things, but also you'd have to then be like, well, now I'm going to blueprint everything because every level I got to figure something out. Uh huh. But you also don't want levels where you're like, okay, cool. I leveled up from four to five. I got nothing. Cool. Neat. I'm glad I'm here. I got four HP. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, you see this in a lot of prestige classes too, where they're like, well, well, how's the prestige class work? You get one ability at level one, one ability at level five, the capstone at level 10. And in between, some skills go up by one sometimes. Yeah, they're like, oh, and then, you know, maybe the ability you got at level one gets slightly better at level seven, but probably not. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, this is fixed by the same way that the, the other pa uh, problems with leveling we mentioned earlier is. Uh, squishing is a really good idea here. Yeah, and you can have, along with the idea of the whole blueprint thing and having options is if you have a level where you don't want to give a new tool to someone have levels where they get options to change tools or add new things to it so if i already have a power that's say oh i can move my speed and then do uh like ranged attack great cool and that only counts as like one action all right Maybe you get to a level that would have been dead, but now you can add things onto it where you're like, oh, if you run by someone while you do it, you can try and like trip them prone and you don't get attacks of opportunity or something. Or you can add little bits onto stuff you already have, so you don't need new powers, you can just twist dials on what you already have. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 completely up with it. I also kinda like the way that there are other games that handle power progression and they just are like okay instead of it being 20 discrete levels that you have to balance across 20 discrete classes we'll just change it to three where there's like like goof tour and then or tier and then heroic tier and then paragon tier and the difference between two characters at paragon tier is always going to be a difference of breadth and not a difference of of power level mm -hmm. uh so I, I i do kind of the savage worlds what kind of works that way and so on there I, and it makes it really easy to set your game the way you want it to be. If you're like, oh, I want to play kind of a, a big damn hero, superhero kind of thing, so I'm going to start this at heroic because the goof level we don't even need to touch. Yeah, and it's especially bad when different classes have different dead levels because then you can't even do a thing where you're like, oh, every class has a level five dead level, so I'm going to start the campaign at level six, and that way we can just skip that. Because it might be, oh, yeah, no, uh, these classes have a dead at five. These ones have it at six. This one guy has one at three and one at seven. And <sighs> dead levels end up making problems for players to be like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't give a shit. Like, when I hit a level up, it should be, hey, neat. And instead it's, okay, nothing changed. No, you're absolutely right. Uh the next one here, at number 25 on the list, is mandatory levels. Uh, and, and then in parentheses, it says extra attack ASI. Now, this is the one for, like, 
it's a problem where this game is built around suggesting that you might wish to multi-class and kind of pick and choose your powers and and build a character based on a variety of factors uh, to your liking. But then when you go online and look at how to do it, everyone's like, don't do that, because if you don't make it to level four in this class, you'll never get your ASI. So you can get your primary stat to 20, which you need to do. Uh, and the same thing with with uh, your extra attack feature. If you're a class that gets them, you have to stay in there long enough to get them or you're playing woefully inefficient because the moment you get an extra attack, you just doubled your effectiveness. Yeah, the mandatory level problem of I have to get to X level before I can leave or before I can look at something I want to do. It's <laughs> I mean, it feels bad for a multi-classing and we did get into multi-classing last time. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Yep. The man- including the- saying mandatory level dips. Yeah, the mandatory level problem of extra attack, ASI, things like that means you have to stick into something when you might not have cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially when you look at it as stuff like the extra attack or the ASI levels also tie into in fifth edition. A lot of the time they're dead levels outside of that. You look at it and you go. What's level five? I got my extra attack. Okay, but did you get something to do? No, I just got an extra attack. I mean, granted, an extra attack is pretty much the best thing you could possibly get. And that's still, the problem. Yeah. is <laughs> It's nothing new, but it's the best thing you can get. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, I, I'm particularly galled by the, the forced choice between feats and ASIs. Uh, in in fifth edition because it feels like they spent so much time and energy in developing the feats and then no one takes them before level eight and here's a fun story that we might have mentioned earlier no one plays past level eight hmm, 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 hmm. uh next sort of tied into that is a power spike level for characters but also Which- for monsters yeah, we talked about this a little earlier when I was discussing the Warlock Paladin thing, where you're like, why would you play a Warlock? Well, you take it to level two, then you switch to Paladin, because Paladin's the best class in the game, but it's even better if it has two levels of Warlocks so that all of your attacks and damage and everything key off Charisma so you don't need any other stats. But additionally, there are just levels for some classes where certain things end up coming online, where you'll play, you know, a class from one to four and those first four levels you're like oh i feel really cool and then Mm. even without dead levels you're like my ability to affect the game has not really increased much and it's because they packed in say at level eight there's a huge bump in what you can do so you end up having this doldrum and then all of a sudden you're like oh now i could do things and the same and and the problem with uh that is you often see that with monster design, uh, especially mm-hmm. in like fifth ed and third ed, where they have no idea what the fuck monsters is, <laughs> where they're yeah. like, oh, hey, this is a, you know, a level five vo- monster and it does this. You're like, cool. A level six monster does twice that. And you're like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> and you should challenge a level three party with it. We don't know what we're doing. We have no idea how to make a game. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. Here at 5th edition, CR stands for Critical Role, our cash cow. <laughs> uh, yeah, the problem And they'll the, never speak against us. The problem with the power spike is it's really 
it's that sort of like the mandatory level problem and everything else we've been talking about. It's like, God, I have to slog to get to this point where I feel good. It's a feels bad for a character. And then yeah. all of a sudden you spike up and you feel awesome. And then you kind of taper off again. <laughs> Uh, the next one's something that's that sparked a lot of conversation due to uh, some offhand comments that popped up in the first episode of this, which is uh, system mastery and the concept of a little brother class, which really uh, we can we can narrow down what that actually means. It's when one class is built intentionally with very little complexity uh, so that a person who is not especially invested in gameplay and doesn't really care about uh, gameplay complex or, or complex mechanics can still participate at the table by just rolling a die and saying, I do damage every turn. Yeah. And this has, you know, very often been referred to as the class you give to your little brother, uh, because you're just like, Oh, I just tell him to roll a D 20 and we see if he does damage. Yeah. Now I, my little brother was too separated in age from me to, to, for this to ever be the case, but I had friends who had little brothers who would play with us and I can tell you right off the bat, first of all, that's a misnomer. No one ever gives the fighter to the little brother. You make them play the cleric. <laughs> and the, I mean, the real issue with the idea isn't there shouldn't be non-complex options. That's Rather, fine. everything, every class should have a non-complex variation. Well, yeah, because... when you decide this entire archetype is a uncomplicated just roll a 20 and see if you do damage it means you've taken that entire fantasy of what that archetype is and decided certain people just won't be able to enjoy it yeah yeah now if you made it such that oh you whatever the simple class is it's just you roll damage and you deal damage that way like Okay, every turn you roll a d20, and then you roll a d10, and then you do that d10 plus half your level in damage. And then you describe how you did it, because if you're a wizard, it's because you threw a fireball, and if it's a fighter, you're hit with a sword. Yeah, and they kind of did that in the 3-5 when they first introduced the idea of Warlock, where it was like, what do you do? Well, I just have an Eldritch Blast. I am mm -hmm. a caster that just zaps... It's all I do. I'm the essentially the uncomplicated version of a wizard. I can do some tricks with my Eldritch Blast if I get some stuff for it, but mostly I just zap a thing. And now, the, that's fine. Well, yeah, I'm just saying that's fine for if you want to add an like non-complex thing to a class, you can do that, and that's fine, but when you say oh either this has to be fully complex or fully not it's an issue of fucking up player option yeah now there's a couple other things to this part of the little brother class has often been that it's supposed to be the training wheels class it's the class you give to someone who is still learning what they're going to be doing and how they play the game now this isn't helpful because a super low complexity class never gets any complexity and you don't really learn anything from it it ends up becoming kind of a, a class ghetto that there's no escaping from uh, it, once you've learned how to play fighter, it's not like you're ready to go play wizard. You you learned nothing. Yeah. It's... You played yourself. <laughs> the problem is you ended up going, oh, what did you do? Well, I took the uncomplicated fighter thing because I didn't know how to play the game. And now I know literally the basics of the game, but not how to play anything else. Yeah. And, and you know, like I was saying, we got some comments on this and some complaints and so on, and they generally boiled down to why do you dislike the concept of a low complexity class? 
wouldn't there be people interested in varying levels of complexity at a table? Sure, sure there are. I mean, granted, I've never been especially a big fan of building for the player who's there to be on their phone anyway. Because <laughs> fuck that guy. It's not my job to write half the book about him. But in terms of building for complexity, yeah, sure, I don't care. But there's no reason for stick it in one class and keep it there. Yes. Like, you know, basically, like I said at the beginning, making non-complex be tied to an entire archetype limits that archetype in a way that you just shouldn't do. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, maybe there are people out there, like, granted, I used to complain about this to my friends back when we were playing third edition, and a lot of them be like, no, you don't understand, the fighter is the simple class. I myself am a connoisseur of fine wizardly arts. And I'm like, yeah, but I really like fighters, and I also really like complexity. Can I have some complexity? And they're like, well, no, because wizards are the complex one. I was friends with a lot of snooty British guys. Yeah, obviously. Mm -hmm. Those, and I was like, but Sir Paisley. And he was like, oh. <laughs> he was like, no, no, I've heard no more. The fox is afoot. Tally-ha. Uh, so next up, we are talking about feats. We had mentioned it a little earlier. Uh, the problem with feats has... They've swung. failed me. They've, <laughs> they have failed me now. Yeah. Feats in some editions are either just taxes that you pay with if it's fourth ed oh, and yeah. kind of third ed, uh, garbage that is just not really going to matter for most things in like, again, third ed. In, in third fifth, ed in particular, go ahead. In fifth ed, they, you know, you have much better ones, but as we mentioned during the ASIs, you're probably not going to see them unless you specifically pick variant human right yeah and that, and that is kind of a problem uh, in third ed is and fourth ed as well they were often feats often did the worst thing i like in role-playing games to me which is we've talked about this before when they when they uh create a situation that now you can't do something mm -hmm. like like you get a feat and it's like okay now you can trip people and you were like, wait a minute, couldn't I just say I was tripping people before and just roll against it and do whatever the... And, and, and now it's like, no, no one can trip people unless they take the trip people feet. Duh. Yeah. And between the gating things of that or the sort of blueprint mapping problem of, well, I have to take these two feats because I need these this feet chain to unlock, you know, spring attack or whatever... Yeah, like whirlwind attack has at the end of like a five chain feet, five feet chain, and it creates multiple problems because not only does it take you forever to get up there, but once you've done it, you're never going to do anything else. Well, All yeah. of your character is built towards this one kind of attack now. So much of the prerequisite feats for a lot of things ended up just sort of being replaced by what you were getting later to the point where you're like, oh, cool, this should have just been one feet and it says spend three slots <laughs> yeah that would actually make a lot of sense and be a great and, and honestly you should be able to go into feet deficit for shit like that because otherwise you're just like oh good i got a feet and now i don't ever use it and it just takes up room on my sheet and doesn't matter yeah fighter feats in particular like they did this thing where they were like all right so in order to balance back in third edition specifically like all right fighters get a feet every other level right so they can get a million different powers and so on. What a great idea. That really gives them a lot of depth. How are we going to balance that? Oh, we'll make it so that every feat is at the end of a five feet chain. 
Well, yeah, because all of the stuff where it's like, well, what can fighters pick with their extra feats? Oh, it's from this list, and that list is all just, here's a thing that leads to a thing that leads to a thing, so that you spend your extra feats essentially just getting the same amount of effect. Yeah, so that's been a problem. Now, 5th edition, honestly, a lot of the feats in 5th edition I really like. Uh, when you look at things like uh, like defense, or what's the the, the defensive one? Uh, the one you that can basically have shield makes you mastery, or... shield mastery. Yeah, uh, they're smart because they do a lot of things. They give you stat bonuses, they give you abilities, they give you various combat riders. There's all kinds of stuff going on in each feat. They really feel like an impactful choice that you're making. But as they're we the mentioned, choice. the the fact that you're probably not even going to see the feats because the extra stats are across the board just generally going to be better for you every time. Mm -hmm. And there's still, even with the fifth ed feats that are so much better, just duds in there that you continue to look at and go, who's taking the five extra languages? Who's spending their like once in a like four level thing on I speak five languages now. Yeah, exactly. Or I find, oh, finally, I got plus two to alertness. Yeah, it's it's an issue. And And we talked also, this is a fourth edition complaint specifically, and some third edition, uh, math tax feats, where they realize they fucked up the math, and so they they solve it by just being like, well, there's a robust feat system. Let's just put feats in the game that you can use or pick if you would like to have corrected math. Well, yeah, anytime you look at a feat and go, this is mandatory because it's a bonus to hit, a bonus to damage. It just makes whatever I'm doing better. At that mm-hmm. point, it's feats should be a thing where you're like, oh, I can do a cool thing now rather than I am plus one more to hit than I was before. Mathematically, this is the best choice. Yeah, those are never a whole lot of fun. Okay, so the next one on the list is spell lists. <laughs> So this is actually a topic that to me boils down to the only time in my life I've ever had a conversation, an argument with someone that went the way they do on the internet, Hmm. the way they do in a shit that didn't happen post specifically, Mm -hmm. where I was talking to a person, they were trying to tell me why the fourth edition is a bad edition, uh, knowing that I am a a, a staunch defender of fourth edition. And I guess they were trying to look to bring me down a peg or whatever. So they were like talking about how they didn't like the book, the, the player's handbook, because it's just a list of player powers all the way through. Like you go to page 200, you're still just looking at a list of powers for sorcerers and, or, or whatever, warlocks or whatever. And it just drags on and on and on. And I was like, you realize every player's handbook has always done that. It's just that the back two thirds of the book was for two classes. Yeah. Before it was, Hey, here's spell lists. Here's a, just an ass load of spells. It's going to take up most of this book. Our page count is just spells two-thirds of it by weight and again if you're not someone that has a spell list you're like cool this is nothing i use and if you are someone that has it you're gonna look at it and be like all right i've got 37 options for picking a spell what should i do and generally there's gonna be an a right answer and a wrong answer depending on Mm -hmm. what you want to do yeah that's definitely true and by the way, the reason I was saying that that, that conversation, that argument really went like a shit that didn't happen post is because after I said that, they actually just went, oh, I never thought of that. And I was like, whoa, hold on. Wait a minute. Did I just actually win any argument ever in my life? <laughs> well, yeah, when you get to the end of the argument and they're like, 
oh no, it's actually just because I like being a wizard and having more options than other people, and I don't like that everyone has those options now. You're like, well, at least you admit it. Even then, I'm like, that's still kind of wrong, because that's just one of the several problems with those giant unwieldy spell lists. You want another one? How fucking irritating is it when you're looking at a monster's stat block, and the monster's stat block is half just the spells they can cast, and not what they do. No, you have to go get the other book out and look up what they do. Yeah, ugh. I just don't care about spell lists. And, and they it's... constantly fuck that shit up where it's like, oh, we, 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 um, there's a, you can summon a leprechaun or a sylph or whatever as a level one summon. Well, that's great. That doesn't seem like too big of a deal. They can cast Polymorph Other. <laughs> oh, so at level one, I can summon one of these little fucks and have them turn me into a troll? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, that's fucked up. You shouldn't have done that. You should not have used spell lists in monster design. Yeah. Spells. And monster abilities probably should stay separate. Not exactly the best idea to just give them player abilities, because then you've turned the game into PvP, and that's never a good idea. Well, and also because it fucking bogs things down unnecessarily. Like, I I'm sure it's very fun to look at the stat line for, like, a 5th edition lich and be like, Jesus Christ, this guy knows 80 spells. But realistically, that guy's going to be alive for six combat rounds. That's the point of him. <laughs> You don't need to know that, yeah, technically he knows Leoman's tiny hut. You just you you're, you just need to know how much damage he's supposed to do every round and then have him do that. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we got a few spell things for the next ones. The next one is that you generally don't have a spell balance in mind. Uh, a lot of the time you'll have certain spells within levels that are the same idea with just being better as a different spell. That if you're is like, true. oh, this is my defensive spell. This one makes it so that everyone is minus three to hit me. And this one makes it so that everyone is minus five to hit me. Well, I guess I take that fucking one then. <laughs> and why is it better than the other one? And why are they both there? Oh, because they've always been there. You've always had mage armor, shield, and blur at first level. So just pick the good one. And no one at any about how blur is a second level spell. I forgot. I mean, especially when you look at quantifiable ones, because when you look at a thing and you're like, oh, but what's the difference between fly and invisibility? Well, it, you can't balance that. And I'm like, OK, sure, whatever. But when it comes down to damaging spells and you go, what does this do? It hits one guy. It does X damage. What does this do? It hits a zone and does X plus three damage. You're like, why the f what the fuck? Why does the other spell exist? Well, obviously, it's so that you don't accidentally burn your friends when you catch them in the zone. Did you ever think of that? Yes, I did, and I hate it. I hate <laughs> friendly fire in an RPG. It's stupid. And there's always feats and things you can take that's like, oh, let's turn that off, because no one likes particularly, it. When it comes to, to being hilarious, 4th edition is hilarious about that, because in the first book, Ma wizards had friendly fire basically turned on clerics had it not turned on and they realized pretty early that it was not a fun balancing mechanic and so they just didn't give it to anybody else no they they made it so that it was like oh what's this oh divine casters don't have friendly fire arcane casters do have friendly fire fuck you yeah but primal casters don't have friendly fire psionic casters don't have friendly fire it's just a couple of the early arcane casters that do and here's two feats that you can take to turn that off. Sorry for yeah. the feat tax. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so sometimes, yeah, there are absolutely spells that are just, no one's ever going to pick this. Why is it on the list? Because it's always been on the list. I mean, there's even a famous thing where 
the developers in 5e had said, oh, we want Fireball to be better than other damaging spells at that level because it's iconic. And I'm like, what? <laughs> then why make other damaging spells at that level if you're going to literally admit you made one on purpose better? I mean, isn't it already iconic? You don't need to keep rewarding it for being iconic. It made it already. Yeah, someone's going to take Fireball because it's Fireball. You don't need to make it so that they took Fireball because it is also the best spell they can get. <laughs> That's the point of being iconic. Oh, well, whatever. Uh, and tying into that... Uh, Spells, spell save stat imbalances. The spell save stat imbalance ties into the whole spell balance thing in that there are certain things that just don't matter. Uh, mm -hmm. And, I mean especially in 5th Ed, because they tied things into specific stats rather than, like, a reflex fortitude type of thing. Yeah, they put they put more saves back in. And when you look at it and you go, okay, but how many things target intelligence? And you're like, oh, there's, like, one spell in the entire game that does it, who gives a shit. At that right. point, you're like, oh, well... Now I feel bad about having a rad intelligence as part of what my class needs because it doesn't give me anything. I mean, that's created a weird little problem where, like, I think it's mind flayers have an ability that targets intel intelligence saves, right? Yeah. And so now players will go online and be like, mind flayers, illithids are completely cheap in this game because they target intelligence and nothing else does. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's bad design, but it doesn't mean they're cheap. You know, That's not an edge you need to sand off. Well, really, also, there should just be more things like them. Yeah, the problem is when you don't have a decent balance of things that target any given stat, then you end up with, like in 5th Ed, there are essentially three stats that are good and the rest aren't for saves because mm -hmm. three of the stats are used a whole bunch. And yeah. if you're a class that doesn't use any of those stats, you're just like, for some reason, I'm bad at magic. I can't save against it. I'm Fuck trying to me. remember what the class was, but there was a big thing come a while back where one class was being introduced. It was like a new class or someone's homebrew or something, and it had two good saves as yeah, opposed to one good and one bad. Yeah, I think there was a class that was coming out that was like, oh, it's got both like a wisdom and a dexterity save that are good. And they're like, oh, shit, you can't do that. Every single yeah. class so far has had one good save and one bad save. If you give them two good saves, what's going to happen now? Yeah, and the other the, the thing that was so interesting about that is that it's never been codified that there are good saves and bad saves. It's just sort of a function that people have noticed about the game because no one ever makes abilities that target a couple of the stats. Yeah, the, and the fact that they have essentially split up every single class into, oh, one of your stat that you use to save that you get a bonus to is good. And one of them is bad. It's, it can't be a mistake that they right. did that, <laughs> but you still look at something like a wizard and you go, yeah, you only have the one good save bonus, but even then you're not putting points into that stat. So you're still bad at it. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of a bummer. Um, what's next on the list here? It's, Oh, spell elemental restrictions. I, I okay. hate that shit. <laughs> Let's, I mean, the idea that it'd be kind of fun to play as like a lightning wizard or whatever is always shot down by the fact that there's only like one or two damage spells per level. And as we mentioned, mathematically, there's already a good one and a bad one. 
Yeah, and they also tend to heavily favor one thing over anything else in D&D, which is fire, Mm -hmm, which means mm -hmm. you can make a fire mage if that is your concept for a wizard and be like, oh yeah, this dude's a fucking fire mage. That's what I wanted to do. But if you wanted to do even one of the other elements that's fairly well represented, like cold, like, oh, I'm an ice mage, even then you're you've got very few choices sometimes at a level you won't have any and most of the time the choice that is like oh i have to take cone of cold instead of you know fireball it's a shame that fireball is just better now this is a great excuse to put in more feet taxes if you want to metamagic your fireball into an ice ball or whatever but uh yeah it's always been a problem and to me a lot of it also stems down to uh monster resistances where it feels like the, every edition they keep wanting to make this a thing. They're like, oh, we're going to put in, oh, lightning monsters and monsters that have resistances and attacks that, def- that deny resistance or grant resistance on defenses and so on. And then no monsters have any, like even the ones where it would make sense for them to like fire elementals don't have vulnerability cold. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a weird thing. I love elemental like flavor for stuff uh like don't you... do the pokemon wheel unless you're gonna do the fucking pokemon wheel yeah and of course the problem is the only people that get to even play with that wheel are casters because 90 percent of the time if you're you know a fighter or a rogue or whatever you're like can you do elemental damage at all and you're like i don't know maybe if i light my sword on fire or i get a magic weapon that does that type of damage yeah. Now, I know in 4th edition, for example, they tried to make this shit interesting by adding feet chains, like the frost cheese build. Uh, but ultimately, what that boiled down to was there were two elements that were worth it and like seven that were not. Yes. You, you were always frost- like, you, could sh- <laughs> you should do radiant because undead is the most prolific thing that has an actual uh, penalty to it. So radiant does actual damage. Yeah, and you can build Radiant such that if everybody in the party is doing Radiant damage, then everyone everyone has combat advantage all the time and does extra damage, and it's a, it's a, it's a whole party agrees to do Radiant abuse. Or if you're by yourself, you can do Frost Cheese, which is really just you get combat advantage on every attack every turn. Yeah, and I mean, they had feat chains for other things, though most of the time it was like, hey, you're plus two on psychic damage, and like, okay, anything yeah. else? Yep. No. The only other chain that ever really mattered was thunder. You could you could build a thunder character that could do ridiculous bullshit, but it was very obscure, and you had to use like multiple multi-classing tricks and shit like that to get there. And you know, ultimately, I don't know that the game needs the rock paper scissors elemental mechanic, but if it's going to have it, it should commit to it a little more than it does. Yeah, I mean, essentially, to fix it is either don't worry about it or make it a mechanic that matters. Meh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I was just playing in a game where, where there were monsters that shut down fire. They were like, oh, we're going to shut down your fire resistance. And I was like, I don't think anyone has any of that. It's it's not a smart idea to build for fire resistance. Yeah. <laughs> okay, All right. wep- weapon choice. Yeah. I mean, the next two kind of tie into each other, which is weapon choice and armor choice. And they both boil down to, mm, you kind of don't have any. Yeah. Be- because, again, it's going to be uh, what does the most damage and is the type of weapon I can use. Like in 
it's been different from edition to edition. In second edition, you should pick longsword because when you look at the magic item random roll table, when you hit a magic weapon, you first start by seeing the 75% chance that it's a longsword. Yeah, you're like, well, I guess I better do that or else I'll never find anything to upgrade with. Yeah. In third edition, it was, do you have a spare feat to get the the like upgraded version of the weapon? Then just take the one that, that that's the best weapon. In fourth edition, it was feat chains. Well, yeah, you'd be like, uh, weapon choice doesn't matter. You're just going to take the one that does the most damage. And it'll only matter if you specifically are like, oh, I have a heavy blade feet chain or I have an, a hammer feet chain. Yeah, hammer and pull arm tended to be the feet chains with the most kind of clout to them. And the same uh, thing with armor. You're also just sort of like, oh, what's the best armor I can wear? And not even the best armor, like highest like ac it's just what's the best armor mathematically because i've got whatever dexterity bonus and this armor allows me to use all of it and get to whatever and it's in my wheelhouse i use that armor choosing yeah. an armor isn't a choice that matters and even then it it, it barely matters because if you're like okay well i guess i probably shouldn't take full plate because i'll be at a minus seven to skill penalties but then again if you're a class that can take full plate there don't any skills that matter anyway let the rogue do that shit yeah the the issue i have is so much of especially the armor choice is it just sort of boils down to man you really didn't need to say oh well you've got this choice and this choice you could wear cloth if you want to i'm not going to because that's bad oh yeah i know the other but thing, it's a choice a <laughs> yeah uh this is a corollary to the armor choice problem but in fifth edition in particular people are always complaining that there's absolutely nothing to spend gold on that they kind of removed the gold economy from the game that's a different uh, thing on here <laughs> i know it is but as it relates to armor uh the fighter or anyone who wants to wear heavy armor is the one exception because for whatever reason, full plate armor is motherfucking expensive. Yeah. So before, if that class wants to come online all the way, you can't be playing in a game where they're like, well, you guys are all on pretty hard times. Some you're going to have to deal with being pretty poor. So you may not have all your equipment fighters. I'm looking at you because wizards of course will have all their equipment. Yeah. Cause wizards of course do not give a shit. Mm hmm. So that's just another small problem to armor choice that's always bothered me is like, if you're going to remove the gold economy from the game, fucking do it. I mean, for me, it's don't pretend that there's a choice. Just say you're this class. You have whatever AC. Don't fucking worry about it because you're just going to pick the best thing for you anyway. Yeah. And it's going to put you right to the AC that the game assumes you're supposed to have. So why not just cut the middleman out? Yep. All right, where are we? We're looking at skills with combat usage. Yeah, they end up a lot of the time outshining, well, not even outshining, but just sort of having a a problem of you need to have at least someone with some of these, or if you have the option to get them, you need to focus on it because D&D is such a combat-focused game. That if you're like, oh, you could pick up knowledge history, or you could pick up acrobatics, and it lets you occasionally roll to get a plus two to hit. And you're like, well, I guess I'll get the plus two to hit then. Yeah. Now, it's funny, because what I what I thought you were going to come up with here is people who use um, intimidation uh, to try to end fights in the middle of the fight. 
I mean, honestly, I don't give a shit. If you're playing in a game that's like, yeah, I I don't care about the fight system in D&D and I'm playing D&D for some reason, and <laughs> you've got someone who's like, yeah, I try and intimidate this like goblin out of here. Sure, fine, fuck it, I don't care. Go for it. Who gives a shit? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh I, I I agree with you. I feel like if you're going to put feats into, uh, or, or not feats, excuse me, skills into the combat model at all, then either they should all have useful applications or they should be in two silos where you can choose between the combat applicable skills and the non-combat applicable skills. And each time you get a choice of one, you get a choice of the other so that you're not hamstringing yourself by not choosing the combat ones. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you had every skill had, some sort of application in combat that you could do it would be a neat trick you know if you go oh yeah like you can go ahead and use your arcana in order to make it so that you know the next spell cast against you has a penalty or you can use your climbing in order to get a bonus to reflex or uh, ac or something because you get out of the way real quick or whatever like that's fine if you want to do that but if you don't, maybe just keep skills separated then. I could see that too. Either way it works. I mean, I've always been a fan of letting people throw skills into combat if they can find a descriptive way to do it. For example, I always like to expand the Arcana skill to the point where it's just like, this is what you roll when you want to do something magically. Yeah. All right. What else we got? Stealth, specifically in the skills. Oh, oh stealth is a bad skill. <laughs> it's a problem in this game by a lot of ways. Yeah, especially... Because you have one class that is all about it, and mm -hmm. if you don't let them do it, then you're like, oh, one of my things just doesn't get to happen. But as soon as they do, you, you're like, all right, well, this guy gets the spotlight for the next half hour as he fucking dicks around in the enemy camp, and everyone else can just sit there with their dicks in their hand while the rogue runs around and does stuff. Or your option is you try and follow him, everyone fails because you don't have stealth abilities like they do, and then you're fucked. Yeah, stealth is a fairly easy fix. I mean, people routinely make jokes about the rogue trying to use it to go on a whole mini-adventure where they, they sneak into the enemy camp to learn secrets and steal everyone's belt buckle so their pants fall down in combat. And, and unfortunately, they fail one roll and everyone notices and they die right away. But wouldn't it be much easier if stealth was just rolled in to gather information? <laughs> if you were just like, oh, I'm going to try and sneak into camp. All right, roll it. Okay, I got a 20. Here's the things you learn and see. I mean, stealth would... <laughs> stealth is the problem of it's a skill that specifically separates someone out. Yeah, and yeah it's, a, it's a split the party power. Yeah, it's... It would be like if you know, rope didn't exist in the game and only the, you know, brawny characters that had climb could actually get up to a thing. And you're like, well, guys, uh, we have to get up to this, the top of this cliff and there's no way up aside from climbing. I'll go do that. You guys wait down here. I'm going to have an adventure. <laughs> it's never good. Uh, I, I mean, I think I talked about that. I don't know if I talked about that in one of these episodes or not. The the uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of people who split the party with the intent to get spotlight time. I feel like it's completely unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know what? It's coming up. There's more there's more stuff coming up further down the line that basically amounts to that. Yeah. Uh, past that is 
a very easy one to talk about is the binary pass fail for D and D. The fact yeah. that I mean, even in the <laughs> like that tweet. the fucking playtest for this for five mm-hmm. e where they were running the game and someone was like, well, you'll need to gather information to see if you can find this temple. And everyone failed their gather information. And he went, why don't you roll that again? I'm like, well, you guys dick around for about an hour and then roll again. Yeah. That, and that was, Oh, what a great job on Merle's part. Cause that was him. Yeah. Uh, the other and, thing I'm thinking of right now is that tweet I saw a few weeks ago that was like, one of the great things about D&D is that failing a skill doesn't necessarily mean failing a skill. You can choose to make that a fail-forward mechanic if you wish. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's true. Like, one of the great things about D&D is that it has shit in it that D&D doesn't have in it if you say it does. Yeah, I was like, this game doesn't have that. Sure, it's nice if you want to take things from good games and put it in there, but <laughs> that's not the game is written or- one of the things that's great about D&D is that it doesn't have a way of enforcing express forbidden permission on things. <laughs> yeah, the binary pass fail is it's a relic and I don't like it and I feel like more modern game designs have gotten around it and the idea of the fail forward or you know, fail with something uh, is much better than just the idea of you attempt to pick the lock, you do not, you cannot try again, goodbye. I mean, ultimately, it really, it really can boil down very simply to don't roll unless you have a reason to roll. Like, unless you can think of multiple interesting outcomes, don't have a roll happen. If if uh, there's only one interesting outcome, then that's the thing that happens. Yeah. Uh, related to that is the notion of the crit fail or succeed on a skill roll, which has never uh, existed. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of my uh, culture of D&D complaints, which I remember apologizing for in the first episode, but fuck it. This is, that's the thing that irritates me most about D&D most of the time, is the culture. Uh, crit, fail, and succeed on skill roll has never existed in any edition ever. Rolling a 20 on a skill is just one better than rolling a 19, and it has been for five editions in a row. Yeah, when you roll a 1 on a skill check, it does not mean you fall down and poopy you pants. What it means is you rolled one less than a two. Did you still have a modifier high enough to succeed? You still succeed. Now, does that mean that I'm super irritated when I see those memes where someone's like, I'd like to fuck the dragon. Rolls charisma check. It's a 20. The dragon is fucked. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. First of all, yes, I am irritated by those because they aren't funny. Uh, But what I'm but what's significantly more irritating to me is that those people aren't just playing the game they could be, that they obviously would prefer to be. Mm-hmm. The game where there's interesting, bizarre things happening constantly, and not 5% of the time the DM has to do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, like, it's a dumb notion, and yeah. stop it. 95% of the time, game is normal. 5% of the time, it's that Upright Citizens Brigade episode where they go to the ice cream restaurant. <laughs> You have to sing me the birthday song. I, I, you clearly, it's not clearly, it's clearly not it's all your birthdays. It's my anniversary. <laughs> uh, uh, next up is the can... D20. It's a bad die for idiots. It's a shitty randomizer, and it shouldn't be used. That's it. Wow. That's a, that's a hard line in the sand. I did not expect that. I, I mean, I feel like the, D, the D20 has a lot more... Uh, cultural cachet that it needs to i mean it's a five percent percentile system it's it's percentile dice but a little rougher and that's all yeah but the problem is 
it's so swingy as far as what people want it to do because people really want it to be like, oh, well, you know, you should be succeeding or failing about, you know, X percent of the time. But a lot of the time with D20 systems, they'll end up fucking that percentage up because they don't understand how a D20 works or they'll have the notion between having like a three and an eight be super wide so that it's just it ends up being that people don't think of it as a percentage system they're just like oh this is a randomizer and they fuck it up and you could just say i roll a d6 and on a four up i succeed and that would be fine if what you wanted was a 50 50 chance but instead of people will say yeah it's a one through 10 and 11 through 20 yeah yeah, that, that, and ultimately, you've seen fixes for this out there in the world before. A lot of I know there are people out there who play D anD D and they roll three d six to hit and to uh, or for the for the uh, to hit roll and the and the skill roll, with the idea being that like a, a sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen becomes the crit because it's about as unlikely as rolling a twenty. Mm-hmm. And instead, you end up with this bell curve position where instead of the ten or eleven happening, you know, five percent of the time each, they happen forty percent of the time. Yes, which gives the fact the game that there a lot. is no bell curve on the D twenty is the main issue. <laughs> Absolutely, I mean, I think there's technically a bell curve if you have advantage and disadvantage, but it really just boils down to a plus five or minus five generally on the math. Uh, let's see. Next up is the saver suck or saver die monsters. God ah, damn it! Yes. The fact that they brought them back for fifth edition is the most annoying thing. Well, it's not the most annoying thing, but it's one of the more annoying things for the edition because. It's awful. It's led to some of the funniest shit. Like technically, there's a le- uh, the white. I think it is has a is a level one monster. Not a big deal. It attacks you with level drain or sorry stat drain. And if it gets your constitution, you drop you go down to zero. And nothing short of a wish spell can bring you back to life because a res spell would bring you back to life with zero constitution and you die again. Yay! And that's that's horse shit and it's bad and, and it's part of save or suck because it's a save it, you know save versus type attack. Um, but when people were, con- when they confronted the designers about it, where they were like, how come this one monster in the whole game can kill you in such a way that you can't be rezzed by anything? And it's level one. Their response was some coy ass bullshit. Like, like, Oh, don't think we didn't think about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you did, you're an idiot <laughs> because the- you certainly didn't use that gimmick twice, which why, which why not? You created an interesting space. Yeah. The problem with the save or suck monsters is it's it's essentially the reason that you never see the skip a turn in modern board game design because that sucks ass for the player that has to skip their turn because now you're just sitting there again with your dick in your hand doing nothing while everyone else plays the game and when the fucking like troglodyte comes up to you and poisons you and is like you're paralyzed like well great i guess i'll just fuck off then (laughs) <laughs> Who among you is Khufu the mommy? Lose your next turn. You are banished to a black hole. <laughs> oh, I was hoping this game would be fun. It is not. <laughs> the, the only part that is interesting is my performance. <laughs> uh, so yeah, don't don't do that. Don't don't make things that take players out of the game. It's bad. You know what it does? It takes players out of the game. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Uh, okay. Uh, the next one's the difficulty of creating a balanced encounter. This is a very third and fifth edition problem where uh, the points are all made up and nothing matters. 
yeah, it's you have monsters that are like, this is a CR three. What does that mean? I don't know, man. This can actually kill a level five party. I'm not sure why we said three. I don't know. It just seemed like fun at the time. I've been throwing darts at number boards. We're certainly going to defend it like rabid people, though, because obviously we have ivory tower design going on here. Uh, you just can't recognize our genius. Yeah, the the fact that there's no good way to tell if an encounter will be balanced for a certain level of party in most editions of D&D is just sort of a... It's sad because it ends up becoming like a system mastery thing for your DM to go, I have to have played enough of this game to be able to look at a monster and know what it actually means and not what this number says. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, you can't... I mean, 4th edition did this very well. They had the math worked out, they thought about it, and they not only did they did they give you a, a XP creation budget, but also every monster in the 4th edition monster manuals came with suggested encounters built into it. Yeah, they're like, Where hey, like, this, is a, this is a good encounter for a level 7 party. Yeah, and it's not just seven of these guys. It's two of these guys and five of their pet whatevers and and an extra guy of a different type. Yeah. So it's an interesting encounter. Instead of number appearing, four to 16. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, up, okay, up next, The Adventuring Day. This has been especially exacerbated by fifth edition in my opinion it's and very one of, contentious it's one of the worst things that fifth edition did actually that i feel they fucked up on mm. is you have a lot of characters that are either encounter based or day based and if your adventuring day is say three encounters your people with a shitload of daily abilities are like oh i can just blow all of these and mm -hmm. be a goddamn superhero and your person with the encounters is like, I'm just I, I'm doing what I do. But if you go like our adventuring day is eight encounters, then your daily guy is like, man, I, I'm sucking wind. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Also, I'm bored at this point because I already use my cool things or I never get to because I'm afraid of more encounters. Yeah. If your adventuring day fluctuates wildly between like four and eight, you're going to be sitting at the third encounter going, do I? do I blow a daily now or am I just going to be fucking myself later? Yeah. And it's not really an, a thing where the DM can twiddle his mustache at you and be like, well, you'll never know. Care you to make the choice because you know, it's not like it's a fun thing if you're wrong. Yeah. If you choose wrong, all of a sudden you're like, well, I, <sighs> all right, you may as well just have that ghoul paralyze me because I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and ultimately, it's funny because to me, the, the solution's super obvious. It, they fixed it in Gamma World 7th Edition, where there's no daily abilities and everything resets to the encounter level at the beginning of each encounter. So, I mean, I guess that could be construed as boring if you're the kind of person who likes to, you know, start a fight with no resources. I don't care, though. I'm Personally, I, I, I like the fights to see a showcase of the DM's design chops and what kind of cool monsters they want to throw at me and so on. Well, yeah, the problem with the adventuring day is it's not a set thing. If the adventuring day was always four encounters, then you would know we're on encounter three. We've got one left. I can use my resources however I want to, and you can play with that. But the adventuring day being literally just however long I say it is, 
ends mm-hmm. up being a weird thing where people don't know whether they should use their stuff or you ended up having only three encounters in the day and the cleric is like well god damn it i didn't use any of my cool things i was just being like i'll hit a thing with a mace because i thought we were gonna have more yeah yeah so i'm not i i i agree with you completely i feel like it's something that they haven't quite figured out yet and i'm not sure how they will and what i mean do we want to talk about what a potential solution to this is i mean i think codifying the adventuring day as a set number of encounters would be great. If you Mm. just say like, Hey man, four encounters after that, you get all your shit back. Great. Then at least, you know, but it's the uncertainty of the adventuring day that I feel really makes things uncertain for everyone playing. Yeah. And I think people will argue that the, uh, you know, a, a real adventuring day isn't uh, isn't certain. You never know when more kobolds are going to attack or whatever. But uh, you know, ultimately, I don't give a fuck. I also don't know how I would do in a, in a, a longsword fight against them. Certain abstractions are a good thing for a game. Yeah, and you know, you don't need to be tied into the idea of the fancy and casting, and you need to fall asleep and then rememorize spells. If you have a cinematic thing for it, you could have a like literal day, like a 24 hour period where you have 12 encounters, but every four you can get the stuff that you have spent back because it's been long enough that now the audience doesn't <laughs> feel bored by it and you can use it again. You want to hear some real horse shit that, cause we, we've talked about this before, but one of the problems with fifth edition is that they refuse to actually release comp- or, or constructive changes or anything. Instead, having decided to dole out FAQs via Jeremy Crawford and Mike Merles's Twitter feeds. Yeah. But but several years ago, someone asked them, hey, uh, my party started a long rest, and after two hours, we were attacked by orcs. Uh, do we get the benefit of a short rest in that case? Because a short rest is an hour. Yeah. And the, and the response was, no, because you didn't start a short rest. You started a long rest. Ugh, eat my entire asshole. <laughs> Just think about how dumb that is. That I mean, because that, that's... You want to talk about things that are weird, meaningless abstractions toward, uh, against realism. The idea that if you're like, well, let's settle down for the night, guys. Anyway, no one get rested yet. You're only going to rest during the last hour of this rest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also speaking of things that can eat my entire asshole, Mike Merles is the next thing on this list. Oh, yeah. Number 43, Mike Merles. It almost wasn't because we had recently been told by uh, one Mr. Jeremy Crawford that he hadn't been a part of the tabletop role playing game project for at least a year. Yeah, or for almost was, a year. That was a lie. That was a lie. I don't know why he felt like he needed to lie about that. Uh, it certainly came with the kind of it, the tweet arrived with a kind of finality that was like, "Hey, I know why you guys are asking this. You're asking about, you know, con- known abuse enabler Mike Merles, and I, I've never really especially liked him myself. And here's here's me saying as diplomatically as I can, he's gone. You don't have to worry about him. And I'm lying. <laughs> and also, that's not true. Anyway, bye. That lasted, that that sense of peace of mind that the guy who uh, asked if he could, as the lead designer of a role-playing game, instead serve as its HR head and take complaints from people about a potential consultant he was going to hire personally, uh, you know, acting as the HR and and ethics department for all of Hasbro on his own behalf. Uh, And then once he got them, he gave them to the abuser in question. Yeah. Uh, You know, I have... (laughs) I've recently 
uh, read the thread where someone was like, hey, you know, Mike Merles isn't great, but I feel like this has gotten performative. But the thing is, he's actually a figurehead at a large thing. If I take down, like, a shitty dude at a publishing company no one has heard of, that's good, and he's gone, and I'm glad, but it needs to be an actual thing that people see. I would... I would like that to be a there are consequences rather than Mike Merle's was bad and awful and nothing happened and it's okay. Yeah, like I'm not about to to go after anybody who's recently made any of those kind of hey, let's leave this guy alone. We can't actually get rid of him and and you know, I'm one of his victims and I I'm not mad at him, so you shouldn't be mad at him. I'm I'm not going to attack those folks cuz they're allowed to have their opinion. Uh but you know, with, Ultimately, we have no idea how many victims Mike Merles has because he has no transparency whatsoever in what he's done. Uh, and the idea that he would have apologized for the things he did flies in the face of the chance that he had to apologize earlier, where he instead of saying, yeah, I did that and I shouldn't have and we're going to remove his name from the book and I'm sorry, uh, he said, that guy wasn't even a consultant. He was a play tester we barely interacted with. In fact, I don't even sure I can spell his name. <laughs> And we were, and and again, that was a tweet he put up. And you know how you can always tell when someone's about to do a shitty tweet is when they are going to post in their own words, but they post a picture of their own words. So it's harder to search later. Yeah. They're like, hey, here's a tweet that is a picture of a Word document that I typed out instead of just making a thread. Yeah. That way it's harder to tweet. So in case this one blows back in my face, which it absolutely did, because it was his last tweet for over a year now. Uh, uh, I would ultimately, just ultimately very recently he was reinstated as as one of the major designers of D and D by the new head of D and D design Ray Winninger. Um, I assume it's because he's one of Winninger's guys because it's oh, just I mean, the shitty boys club. I assume it's just oh because he was already here and he's here and so we will do that. It doesn't matter. We don't uh, care. <laughs> ultimately, the Winninger announcement, which came during a stream, uh, and that portion of the stream has been delicately excised from the online stream. You can still go watch if you would like to, because <laughs> they didn't expect the blowback. And I will tell you why. It's because this is the fourth time they've tried to run up a maybe Mike Merle's trial balloon. Yeah. And every time and, they're and, like, well, maybe he's just working on video games. No, he sucks ass. OK, well, never mind. Well, maybe he's a full-time designer here at D&D. Oh, okay, you guys are still mad. I thought that instead of apologizing, we could just sit on him for eight months, and then you could just take him back? Yeah. It's he, guy, It's mostly it, it, the, the arrogance and lack of giving a shit on the part of the entire D&D crew for Mike Merles that is especially the problem, where I'm like, just fucking take some amount of blame and say hey i'm sorry don't just be like man it's a shame that you guys are angry anyway i'm gonna ghost out for a year i mean can we talk this guy's drew, drew a paycheck doing nothing at wizards of the coast for a year rather than get in any kind of real trouble yeah no he's, i mean he's it's, not worth it listen I, look if you're crawford or you're winninger and somehow this makes it to your ears why are you still how what does this guy do every day that makes him so worth keeping on the team obviously he Twitter gets incredibly mad at you every time you try this. What's he doing? That's worth it. Eh, uh, you know, showing up being there <laughs> looking like a white dude in a polo shirt. I mean, great. You got to have some of those. Uh, all right. We have talked for a while and we may as well end it there. We'll be, sure, I'm ready to be done. 
yeah, we'll be back with another episode. We'll probably wrap up the last of it at the end of the next episode, I assume. Yeah, we'll have to quick fire some of those, but we are ready to go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much to all of those that pre-ordered our last book. And, uh... All of you out there, thank you for listening to all of our ranting on D&D. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and we'll see you real soon with yet more. Uh, we have the whole list written out. We, we're all good to go. Thank you so much. Just so you know, our next book is now available for pre-order, last I checked. <laughs> yeah. We did wait way too long on this. <laughs> so uh, at the moment, as far as I'm aware, our next book, I, I'm not sure if we really need to talk about it, but if you search for it, you can find it. Yeah, I mean, we can just go ahead and announce it at the end of the last episode. It's fine. I, th I think that's a good way to go because we're still kind of in an editing phase with it. Uh, but we're really excited that, that that's happening, and we'll have to come up with yet another exciting bonus thing for that one's release. Yes, indeed. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Play good role-playing games. Remember, no role-playing is better than bad role-playing. And you have a wonderful week. D20s. Alignment grids. Several things. Several things.